Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and I'm excited to talk with our guest today, and I know you are going to love her as well. Today, I'm speaking with maestro Jana Saylor. In June 2016, Jana founded the Vancouver-based Allegra Chamber Orchestra, one of the only all-female classical orchestras in the world, an ensemble dedicated to creating opportunities for women and minorities in the music industry with a mandate of social action through music. The orchestra has been featured on CBC Radio, German Public Radio, Radio ICI, The Strad Magazine, The Violin Channel, The Walrus, The Hub Magazine, as well as many other publications and media outlets across North America and Europe. Jana has conducted major orchestras and ensembles, including the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, the Calgary Philharmonic, the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir, and the Vancouver Bach Choir, among others. Jana has held conducting positions with the Vancouver Philharmonic Orchestra, the National Academy Orchestra of Canada, and the Vancouver Youth Symphony Orchestra. In addition, to conducting, Jana enjoys a diverse career as a violinist, delving into contemporary world and early music, jazz, and classical crossover, in addition to chamber and solo engagements. Ensembles she has performed with include the Vancouver Opera Orchestra, Vancouver Intercultural Orchestra, the Pacific Baroque Orchestra, and Toffel Music. Jana has served as the concertmaster with both the Montreal-based L'Orchestra de la Francophonie and the National Academy Orchestra of Canada. Welcome, Jana. It's so good to have you here today. How are you doing? Thanks so much, Olivia. Such a pleasure. So, so much fun to uh, have this opportunity to chat with you and share a little bit of what I do. I'm really excited about it. So I like to start all of my interviews with the same question, and that's, can you tell us more about how you went down the path of being a musician? What was that origin story like for you? Well, I started violin when I was three years old, and um, many years later, my mother ran into my very first violin teacher and uh, said, oh, you know, I'm Janice Saylor's mom. And uh, she said, oh, Janice Saylor was the last three-year-old I ever taught. Um, so <laughs> apparently I had no plans to uh, to play the violin. And uh, there's all kinds of stories of me, you know, um, wedging myself underneath, you know, the coffee table and um, finding hiding places and to, to do just about anything to get out of playing the violin. So, but um, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, it eventually grew on me. And uh, I think a, a lot of that had to, to do with um, actually joining um, the Saskatoon Youth Orchestra when I was 12. And I really discovered, I, I discovered the orchestra from a whole nother perspective um, of actually being within it instead of just watching and, and participating. Um, I'd grown up in Saskatoon and watching the Saskatoon Symphony. So so now when I come home to conduct, it's kind of like a, a weird time warp and, <laughs> and a little bit surreal to come back and, and conduct the the very first, one of the very first orchestras I'd ever I'd ever seen perform live. And I really found, you know, my place of belonging within the orchestra and loved what we could create together. And it was so much more so than, you know, what I could do on my own in my in my practice room. And uh, I guess that's where my, my love affair with the orchestra began. Um, I went on and uh, did my bachelor's and my master's and uh, an artist diploma in violin performance and uh, started working with uh, Vancouver Opera and, and working as a professional freelancer in Vancouver early, early on in, in my, my academic career and, you know, further discovered, dove deeper into um, the, the orchestral experience through, uh, yeah, opera and and other other aspects of um, you know a, a busy and diverse freelance 
life. And then things kind of changed suddenly um, when I was quite badly injured in two car accidents and I was having um, recurring you know, neurological issues and concussion issues and pain when I was playing that um, I couldn't really get to the bottom of even after years of physio and uh, medical attention. And it just came to the point where I couldn't hold down a, a full-time violin position. And as fate would have it, uh, I was also on staff. Uh, as an assistant manager with the Vancouver Youth Symphony. And uh, I was kind of the, you know, assistant manager. I was kind of the everything girl. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just filled in, filled in uh, whatever blanks needed to be taken care of that day. And we were in a, a staff meeting, you know, I'm there like, you know, in a lot of pain and feeling pretty bummed about my career. And one of our conductors had a, a family emergency and had to just walk off the job on three days notice. And they said, okay, so can you just conduct those two orchestras for, for this week? Just just for this week, you know, we can't find anybody at like such short notice. Like, don't worry, we'll, we'll get somebody for next time. Just do whatever you, you want with the orchestras, babysit. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I was terrified. I'd, I'd taken all of the conducting courses I, I could that were available at, at the time at UBC, mostly because I didn't want to take theory. And uh, <laughs> it seemed really? like, a, yeah, <laughs> it seemed more fun. Well, I guess who's, uh, yeah, now working on, on theory. So uh, that's me. But anyway, so I, I'd taken uh, conducting courses, but I, like I said, I, I wanted to do it, um, you know, to become a better orchestral musician, to kind of understand what the heck was going on on the podium. And, and uh, like I said, get out of theory. But they, long story short, they never ended up finding a replacement. They just kept making me conduct. They're like, no, you're doing fine. Just just keep doing whatever you're doing. And um, I was terrified and felt like I was only a few steps ahead of the kids. And, you know, I'd go home and feverishly study up these, you know, the little kid music and all this. But then by the, the end of the season, I had two other conducting job offers. And I, I wasn't really in a position to turn it down because I didn't have any other work. <laughs> and I hated it. So I just kept conducting. But uh, it was something that was really uncomfortable for me. Once again, I loved working with the orchestra and the musicians, but I feel comfortable being in, you know, a position of authority, being in the center of attention. I was someone that was very happy being buried in a in a violin section in, in a pit underneath the stage. My opera my opera orchestra job was my dream job. I, you know, I I wasn't comfortable making decisions and expressing my opinion and, you know, all of all of those things that you have to do when you're in a leadership position. And, you know, you're not even even conducting a little kids orchestra. They're not always going to agree with the decisions that are made or understand your artistic vision. But actually, that was the very best training I think I could have ever received as a conductor because, you know, anything that could go wrong <laughs> would go wrong. And also, I was learning alongside the, the kids and, you know, I, I learned how to um, create a, a safe atmosphere for learning and, and co-creating and which is kind of the basis of my philosophy of creating my, uh, my own orchestra and my own projects, which is first of all, to create a safe space for everyone to uh, to create and um, be fully fully themselves and fully empowered in their their skill set. So that's kind of a, a quick and, and and dirty rundown of my career. <laughs> and how I got where I 
that is incredible. And I think one of the reasons why I love starting with this question is because I think it's so important for young musicians to kind of know how there are varied paths to get to where you'll ultimately get to. Very rarely do people stick in the one job that they set out to do at the very beginning when they were 18 and starting university, right? And there are circumstances like car accidents, you know, that alter your life and your ability to be able to do one job. And sometimes circumstances create these new opportunities for us. And so I think it's really important to know that it's not always a straight straight path to success. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always meant to be. Yes, I think we learn so many things along the way and taking different roads. So I mean, which leads me to my next question, you had mentioned that you've started your own orchestra, and you're an incredible conductor and the founder of the Allegra Chamber Orchestra. And am I right in saying that it's one of the only all-female orchestras in the world? That's so correct. Yeah. Can you tell us more about how you started Allegra and what those early years looked like and how did you get going? Certainly. So we founded in 2016 and uh, I was going through um, <laughs> I was going through a thing within the, uh, the, the context of uh, the music industry. I was feeling very frustrated with the uh, politics and the, the work atmosphere and kind of the toxicity that I was being exposed to in my various workplaces and general disenchantment with 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 working professionally as a musician and I was getting to the point where I was like well if this is what it's like I don't want to do this I want to move on and and find some a healthier career that sustains me uh, in in a different way because to be honest there, there wasn't a lot of positive aspects other than being able to create music in the professional that I had I had been working in and around that time I had coffee with a friend of mine who had just founded a beautiful organization called Music Heals, which is uh, an organization that works with existing organizations such as schools, care homes, uh, residential, uh, like seniors, residential homes, things like that, and goes in, assesses their needs and works with them to create a music therapy program within that meets their needs, pairs them with, you know, the right kinds of therapists and resources um, that can, uh, you know, assist with children with learning disabilities and ADHD or military servicemen with stress disorders and things like that. So I was just so moved and by their work and what they were doing that I, I just wanted to help. I was like, yes, this is what I know music can do for people. This is what I, you know, why I became a musician is because it's such a powerful, amazing thing. And so I decided to just put together a little benefit concert at the end of the season. I was like, let's just put it out there to my colleagues. We'll play some music and raise some money. It'll be my, my little contribution to music heals that will, will make me feel better <laughs> about what I'm doing and contribute to this cause. And so I, um, you know, I wrote an email detailing what Music Heals does and I sent it out to just a wide swath of my colleagues and put out a call for musicians. And um, so you know, responses started to come in and it was all women. It turned out that there was so much of a response to it that I was like, oh wait, we could just grab a grab a set of timpani and another trumpet and could play Beethoven. It's like, we're actually an orchestra. We're not just like a, a chamber group. You know, and at first I thought, uh, oh, you know, this will be fun. We'll, you know, we'll play it up. We'll make a joke that we're all women and we'll serve chocolates and, you know, wear fun shoes and just make it like girls night out at the, at the orchestra. But 
when we got together, it was such a powerful thing. It kind of opened up dialogue that I hadn't had prior to this with my male identifying colleagues about how they were feeling in the workplace. And it really became apparent that we needed a safe place to just be women, just be female musicians and just create. It was in 2016, which was kind of the height of the Me Too movement. So in just being an all-female orchestra and even our, our first couple of concerts, we we played music and we gave it to charity. It engendered a lot of negativity. And even just the fact that we were all female musicians and coming out and saying, you know, we're an all-female orchestra, people seemed to take a, a great deal of offense to that. And it was a, a very, I guess, a very sensitive time for, for gender issues. Um, if you think back to 2016, it's almost ancient history now. But so it was very interesting. And it, uh, we went through a lot of discussions about who we wanted to be and how we wanted to be and you know we created a mandate and basically we, we pretty much stuck with it of women helping women through music and so we raised uh, the seed funds for a music therapy program for a women's shelter that we are that we still support so we are a fully professional orchestra and a portion of our ticket proceeds always go to a designated charity and we we do manage to pay ourselves we are paid through the union and we just make that part of everything that we do is giving back to society through not only art artistically, every every concert has a social action uh, message or messaging, and we champion the works of female and minority composers, but we also wanted to do something practical to, to give back as well. And over the years, I, I, you know, I received, as I mentioned, it was, it seemed to bring out a lot of the ugliest things and sentiments in, in people in regards to gender and gender issues and equality and all of this. And so I received hate mail for about a year, but that has tapered off and I think people we had a, a mission and a mandate set out to do it and I don't think people expected us to actually do it and to stick with it mm. and we have and you know with any organization we've had our growing pains and we've almost gone under but I think our strength is in the, the truth in which it was founded on yeah. and and we keep coming back to those principles and we're not like other organizations and uh, professional arts organizations professional orchestras in what we strive to do and you know as an orchestra we've given tens of thousands of dollars to charity and mm -hmm. that you know that's something that um, I'm proud of as a yeah. human but even more proud of that there are, are others that have the same vision for music and what it can do and the power of music that ultimately brings us together and can be the source of social change and that I had to kind of had to prove to myself yeah. that that was possible. Yeah. And that's, it's unfortunate that you have received so much backlash for an organization such as this, because that was one of the things that drew me to your work and the work of Allegra was all of the advocacy work that you do, that the concerts are open to the partners of the organizations that you work with, that you're serving the vulnerable communities and sort of breaking down that, that barrier because classical music often gets this hierarchy can be put on a pedestal of it's like, oh, it's high society. And that's really not not what it's about. Music is is about sharing, right? It's about the community. And so I love that you're doing your part to sort of break down those barriers that often inhibit people from experiencing music.
Yeah. yeah. Another incredible program that you run is the composer mentorship program where you're connecting early career composers with established composers. Could you tell us more about that program and what that mentorship program looks like? Yes, absolutely. I was just working on it actually before our conversation and I'm so excited. It's going to launch again in January and we are looking forward to the possibilities that working with composers. New music has always been a part of what I've done as a musician when I, you know, when I was a violinist and also as a conductor. And that's been one of the most rewarding aspects of my career is seeing a piece of music come to life, like realizing that with a, and co-creating that with a, with a composer. And I love the process. I'm someone that loves the, um, you know, the workshopping and the, the rehearsal phase just as much as the performance phase. So we get to work with these wonderful composers over a six month period, and they are paired with some of our amazing mentors that have ties to Allegra that are award-winning and established composers have very distinct voices in the field and and it's really wonderful we have monthly check-ins and monthly professional development workshops and it's so cool to see the little germ of an idea to just uh, the end result and so of course like everything <laughs> our, our last iteration of it uh, happened during COVID so it was all online but we learned a lot of things from that and actually it's shaped how we are moving forward and being able to open it up to Canada wide to because we'll we'll deliver it um, virtually they can work with their mentors from wherever and they work very closely with members of the Allegra composer incubator ensemble so they have the chance to dive in and work with our harpist Albertina Chan for example and ask about all these techniques and there were like ex all kinds of really cool extended techniques that were incorporated as a result and she worked really closely with percussion and actually Mary Alice Conrad, one of our composer incubator participants, actually invented some percussion instruments in collaboration with Katie Reif, one of our one of our percussionists for the, the last composer incubator in, in 2021. Amazing. So and you can actually see all of those performances on our YouTube channel. It's part of we rolled it into Festival, which is our biannual festival of female identifying composers. So like I said, because of COVID, it was all online. Yeah. But we were able to get some really lovely video and all of the composers were so different. They all had really distinct voices and things to say, really wonderful reflections on life and music and humanity were just reflected. It was really moving to actually get together. You know, we'd all been apart working on this project and then to finally come together after six months and um, actually be in the room with the musicians and with the composers all spread apart, of course, you'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> and it was initially supposed to be a full orchestra, but then with limits of numbers, we worked with a smaller group of seven, which actually I think was a nice intimate group for them to uh, really develop rapport with the musicians. And musicians were really, really invested in bringing these works to life. So we will be opening up that application process in the next couple of weeks. And uh, so you can, you'll be able to find that on our website, allegrachamberorchestra.com. And uh, yeah, we, we welcome all minority composers to apply from around Canada. It is funded by the Canada Council. So we can only, we can only extend it to Canadian 
composers at this point, but we're hoping to be able to broaden that in the next couple of years as the program grows and and hopefully expands to offer more to more folks. That's amazing. That's so incredible. And I think invaluable to have that mentorship experience if you're a young composer. So when you're doing that, you mentioned the composer incubator ensemble. Is that what you called it? Does that mean that each of the composers is going to be writing for a specific set of instruments? Do Are there like there are parameters around each of those. Is that correct? That's right. And we try to like mimic what it would be like if you were to receive a commission from Mm -hmm. say a professional orchestra and you have a timeline, you have a time limit, you have a specific ensemble, specific strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, so we tried as much as possible to kind of imitate a professional mission and they work with me, they bounce ideas off me, they get, they get all kinds of feedback, (laughs) maybe more than they would like (laughs) Um, but it uh, it was you know they were just so we had six composers in the last iteration of the program and they were all just incredibly open and willing to learn and co-create and it's still one of my career highlights was working with those amazing composers that have gone on and because the other the other part of it was we wanted them to have a set of skills that they could take with them so we have workshops that we offer as well on how to promote yourself and how to work with the CMC on how to leverage your social media and how to get your works out there on work-life balance <laughs> and also how to present yourself professionally and in addition to having like a professional recording by you know a set of professional musicians and a professional set of parts made with them by the CMC that they can then you know send off to other ensembles we wanted to give them some of those practical skills that are maybe not taught in school you know you're so busy working on the technical aspects of your craft which is huge that there's sometimes there's these other aspects of the music business that, that are constantly evolving so we had professionals from various fields within classical music uh, you know concert presenters and and librarians and things come in and do presentations from their experience and their you know what would be required of a composer or were you to make this leap into composing for professional orchestras and a lot of them have gone on and, and done really well Maria Ellis Conrad has had a number of premieres Maria Eduardo Martinez as well, just to name a few, and they're getting uh, commissions and kind of using them. I know um, Ashley Seward is having opera workshopped. So it's really exciting for us to feel like we were a small part of their success. Obviously, they're tremendously talented on their own, but to be able to collaborate with them and perhaps add to their toolkit was a tremendous honor for us. Absolutely. It's fantastic. And you've touched on it a little bit, but I'm curious is how has your job shifted in the pandemic? Were you able to still run concerts spaced out and streamed or how did that look for Allegra? Yeah, well, we we had to go pretty much entirely online. Um, and that was due to some of the restrictions in BC and the performing venues in BC. So our, our venues that we work in, thankfully, uh, the uh, city of Vancouver was able to create a safe working space for us within the civic theater so that we could go on recording and doing our, our live streaming and virtual things, but um, not to the point of having a, a public concert. So that was actually, that was a tremendous learning curve for me. And, you know, I'd never uh, done that much. Well, I don't think any of us had ever done that much video uh, or live streaming and yep. like working with Opus 59 films to call shots and, you know, work a, work a concept and a presentation 
creation and yeah shout out to opus 59 films that did an amazing job on and did all of our streaming for festival and then also workshops that were supposed to be live and in person we put all of those there uh online and then but we were able to reach a lot lot more people like i think we're all kind of discovering that there was a, a mixed blessing there in, in that you know what would have happened in uh, the meeting space at cmc could now reach whoever would like to to join us from across canada in some cases the globe so i feel like in a way it was really great for our visibility and when we look at our analytics and see who's watching and listening who knows how accurate those are but it's really it forced us to get materials out there beyond our established audience which was really interesting for us and to constantly be able to reimagine things it was challenging for creativity you know you have these certain parameters set around it's like okay like what is actually the meat and potatoes of this project what is the essence of this project we can still get that to come across by focusing on these certain things you know and and capturing that as best we can in a live stream or an educational opportunity so i think the biggest change was it made me really really focus on what we were trying to do what were the most important aspects and what we wanted the audience to take away in a very short period of time because you don't have an entire concert <laughs> of people yeah. of, of attention right so you know with live streaming you have to just get right to the point and yeah you don't have an hour and a half for it to unfold and to take the audience on a journey so so that was really interesting and those are skills that i'm going to try and incorporate and take with me into my live performances like those those are really useful powerful tools absolutely i think that it covid forced musicians to get more creative and it forced us to learn or use some of those skills that we maybe weren't using like i had no idea when i was doing my masters that i would end up being video and audio editor and you know putting together virtual streams and what that looks like but i mean i have been a part of putting together entire virtual concerts before and those are skills that i had to learn or develop but i'm so grateful that i have them now yeah but it's it's a different experience and nothing beats live so you're working with the sso on a concert of abba music or their pop series so can you tell us more about that concert are there going to be singers with the orchestra are the arrangements new can you tell us anything for sure it's it's going to be a lot of fun i actually uh really enjoy doing shows like this because chances are there are quite a few people in the audience that have never been to an orchestra concert before they just see abba and they're like i'm in and they don't expect it to be amped up to 11 with like a full-size symphony orchestra yeah so it's presented with the singers from jeans and classics and i actually had an opportunity to do a portion of this show this summer with the national academy orchestra in a concert in tribute to boris brat who was one of one of my mentors so so it kind of has a an extra like layer of, of memory and meaning he also was a, a big fan of uh, engaging the audience and that was a, a show that he had programmed and then of course he passed on and so um i stepped in uh, along with some of my other colleagues to cover for those those programs but i love the music of abba it was kind of one of my first forays into pop music and that was courtesy of a turntable and record collection that our elderly neighbor down the street was getting rid of and she gave it to she gave it to me it was a complete revelation there were along with like every single abba record there was all kinds of elton john and david bowie and eden's clearwater revival like all these things that just blew my mind but abba was my favorite and i remember my little sister and i she knew 
how to work the turntable and she would she would sometimes she would wake up and turn on the turntable in the middle of the night blast out and scare everybody half to death but one of my most treasured memories with my sister is us dancing around to ABBA and singing and she was like three years old and she knew all the ABBA words and so I, I think that's also speaks to the power of music that so many so many generations later people love this music yeah. and you see all all ages of audience members there enjoying the music and dancing and being connected by this I don't know this golden thread that goes back to who knows where and next all of us and that we all we all love it together and that's a nice feeling and much as I love new music and the old war horses of the classical music repertoire <laughs> you don't always get that feeling <laughs> yes. I love that and I think the energy in the room is just different in those pop concerts it's just it's a different feeling and it's so fun so I'm gonna shift to one of my last questions here is I'm curious if we have early career conductors listening in or we have young musicians that want to get into the field of being a conductor one day what's some advice that you can pass on to them how do you get started what does practice look like when you don't have a group to work with do you just practice in front of your mirror or what does that look like how do you develop those skills yeah practicing is is ridiculous <laughs> no it's, it's it's challenging absolutely i'll get to that in a in a in a moment but i think jump on any and every opportunity to do whatever kind of music you are presented with because you know whether that's playing or conducting or participating in a choir because being a conductor requires you to be the everything person you have to you have to be able to understand and interpret and be able to jump into any and all styles and genres not just the, the classical repertoire and dig deep as far as talk to musicians go up to them i've never had a musician be rude to me or or be like no i'm not going to tell you about my instrument <laughs> i you know i would go up to when in my earliest days and i still do this go up to percussionists and be like so how does this work and what what were you doing i saw you doing this thing what were you doing like they've got all kinds of things back there and you know or a trumpet player tell me about your rotary trumpet tell me what's hard tell me what's challenging and the students and oboists love to tell you about their reeds <laughs> And it's important. Oftentimes when I was a young conductor, I'd be like, what, why is this happening? And they'd be like, one second, there's no shame in starting off working with youth orchestras and with community orchestras, because you learn the most. Professional orchestras can compensate in different ways. They can compensate for your weaknesses, mm -hmm. whereas those younger orchestras and less professional orchestras will not and cannot. So they're, you know, they're more reliant on you. And so you'll, you'll get a better picture, I think, at least I did of my conducting and, and what I was doing from those folks that won't just compensate for what you're not doing or you're not doing well. And maybe I've never seen this repertoire before. Perhaps it's their first, first visitation to some of these bigger works. So for younger, for younger musicians and just be open to, to learning and, and all avenues available to you, whether you're actually on the podium or not and keep playing. If you have a principal instrument on occasion, I still sub in as a violinist with the Calgary Philharmonic, you know, and I always learn so much, even if it's repertoire that I played many times before. Now I, I don't have a lot of time to practice or play all the other things that I'm connecting is super time consuming, but it's one of the most valuable things to, is to put myself back in the shoes of the player. We can get into conductor brain. We have a schedule, like understandably, <laughs> you know, we have a deadline. We have all this pressure to create this thing in like, three days or whatever it is. And so we can sometimes disconnect ourselves, or at least I could sometimes fall into that trap of, you know, just my grocery list and my, my laundry list for the day of things we need to do and get done and cover and forget about maybe what the experience 
experience of the player that's sitting right there might be feeling and how much impact you have on their experience and their day and their life as a as an artist mm -hmm. that was how you show up on the podium every day in front of them so putting yourself back in the position of being a player and uh, and observing rehearsals you know notice how things land how instructions that the conductor gives whether it's uh, orchestra affirming or if it's frustrating the ensemble or just noise and not helpful and there's everybody's tuned out you know it's a fascinating social experiment putting everyone together in, the, in an orchestra and having one person kind of being this kingpin that has influence and i think I, at least with my ensemble that i work with regularly so allegra chamber orchestra and the vancouver intercultural orchestra i try to and you can do this with ensembles that you know you've developed a relationship with really have it be more of a collaboration and distribute that influence a little bit more throughout so that your your principals know that they have responsibilities and and that there are collaborators with you rather than you just being a, a dictator but so often when i'm going in and guest conducting it's difficult to do that you have unknown ensemble and you just have to call the shots and get things done like i said in three days or a week or however long you have it's never long enough however long you have yeah. it's, it's never sufficient so sometimes you just have to jump in there but you know it's always nicer when you have more time to to actually create those relationships and collaborative feelings between um, yourself and your and all of your ideally all of your players but most notably your, your principal players and for practicing it is it is a strange thing to do of course you have your analysis you know taking apart the score and there are lots of different ways to study a score to analyze a score to break down a score and that could be a, just a whole <laughs> that could just be a whole podcast <laughs> yes Absolutely. <laughs> we should do that later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get just again, but get a bunch of conductors and we'll just nerd out. And then, you know, gesturally, you do have to work with your body and find your gestures in your body and get comfortable in your body. You know, one of my big challenges being, you know, a tall, skinny, scrawny woman with really long arms was that all of my conducting mentors and teachers, and I, I say this with all love and respect, but they were short, fat men. They were very different from me physically. Mm. Gestures that they would work didn't work for me and especially you know I had and I still feel like I struggled sometimes to convey power gravitas like I said I'm a tall skinny woman with like abnormally long arm and so so there were there were things that I would go to coachings and take bits and pieces of but ultimately I had to figure it out myself and yeah that's a lot of like ridiculous flailing in front of a mirror and you know you I think with conducting there there isn't really a set of study books like you have for instruments you can go and grab like Hannon or Shradiak or a Sevchik or any of those things but we don't really have that you know there's there are different methodologies but it's not as clear-cut for conductors and so of course you do a lot of observation you do a lot of creeping other people's videos and uh to kind of be like so what did they do there and would that work or did it not like what does that do to the ensemble and how does that feel in my body like if i'm not convinced of it if, if it's not coming across convincingly in my body then there's no way i'm going to be able to bring 80 people with me <laughs> in yeah. an orchestra and a chorus you know like that's that's not happening so well it was a lot of getting comfortable in my body working with my body and experimenting and then yes there are certain things where you have to be kind of clinical about it and you have to be like this is a formulaic way that you have to conduct this transition and you know it looks like I conduct a lot of new music where you know there's not a lot of I, I, I don't mean to say there is an expression but the complexity dictates that you have to do things in a very straightforward way and you have to trust that the musicians will take that instruction and make music out of it so in some ways you have to be very clinical about that and just making 
making sure that your job is to be clear and get out of the way as a person and so that it's just music that comes out it's not you and your your dramatic gestures and sometimes it's called for but sometimes it's, most of the time it's really not they just need mm -hmm. information and a lot of times extras get in the way and that's something that i value a lot as as a player it's like i just need you to show me your idea and where it fits into the big picture yes that's what I try to do. I try to take myself out of the picture and just make it about the music and make mm -hmm. it about what the musicians need. So that's what I try to do in my practice, often like just taking out extras. <laughs> yeah. We had Cassette Justo Valdez on the podcast and one of the lines that stuck with me is she said, take your ego out of the music. I oh. think that's good advice for all of us. It doesn't matter what instrument we play or what ensemble we conduct, that it's about the music. It's not about us. So I think that's similar advice to what you're giving. That's so great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. So no wrong answers. Just go with your gut. Can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician? My first day of youth orchestra rehearsal. I love it. Favorite piece or song to perform? That's the hardest question. I know. <laughs> It's like, it's literally whatever I'm working on at the time. Well, you know, whether it, it, it's a new piece or that's just been composed or something that's been in, you know, in the canon of repertoire or yeah. pop show, I'm always like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing piece of music. Yeah, I love it. Essie Vuela of uh, Rayatan, when she was asked like, what what's your favorite piece to sing? She goes, the one I'm singing right now. Have you ever been given bad career advice? So often. <laughs> I was just thinking about this, um, the other day and and I don't mean to like play the gender card but there's been I can't tell you how much how many disparaging comments have been made to me yeah. as a female conductor over the years and just about my career path and how female conductors were a fad and so I should just enjoy it while it lasted and, you know things like that but I think the worst the worst piece of career advice was given to me by someone really really established in the in the music community and that was like you know what you should just uh you know this all-female orchestra you should hire them out to like you should wear really revealing clothes and hire them out to like casinos and stuff and you'd make a ton of money and I was like oh my god you have missed the entire point of like my entire life this is the whole like, oh my <laughs> like, gosh and, and if you want to you know wear yeah, like clothes you wear whatever you like and do whatever you like casinos can be a good time but that was totally not the point no, <laughs> no. wow yeah I don't know you know because we're always asking like what's the best career advice you have and I think people have been given lots of really terrible career advice I'm fairly young and I've still been given lots of terrible career advice and often unsolicited of you course. know advice usually so I mean so then on the flip side what's your best advice that you can pass on to up-and-coming musicians well for me when I started having success and things started working and I gauge I gauge my success very modestly you know I consider myself to be you know a lifelong apprentice of the craft and but when things started to actually work we started to actually click is when I started to actually be myself on the podium and there was a lot of I won't get into it but you know there's a lot of inner deeper work that you have to do peeling away layers perhaps that have been imposed on us um, you know throughout the process of just being a human and music school and all those things or um, your own expectations of what you think you should be but when it started to actually work and I started to feel like I was connecting with orchestras is when I was unapologetically myself
myself and I started to find my own voice and that's a constant process you know of, of growing and evolving and but really there's enough fake people creating from a deeper place and from your own unique place we don't need any more copycat soloists or conductors or what we need now is is artists that are truly authentic in what they create and you know actually really taking that time to discover who you are and what you want to say as an artist I think for me that was a critical turning point in my career and like I said when things started to work and it's just as important to work on yourself as it is on your on your art absolutely yeah couldn't agree more I love that advice last question what music are you listening to right now Right now, well, as mentioned earlier, I'm a huge fangirl of Julie Nasrallah. So first thing in the morning, I always crank up some Julie Nasrallah yeah. and um, <laughs> do my chores on CBC Radio too. So that's also um, very fun. And I'm really loving Carolyn Shaw right now. Like just the music of Carolyn mm -hmm. Shaw always just puts me in, um, I don't know, just transports me. I don't even know how to, I, I won't try to describe it to people because <laughs> I'll wreck it. But she's just one of the most interesting innovative creative composers I think that's that's creating right now and I never know what's going to happen uh with her composition compositionally I never know what to expect so yeah I I'm loving just diving into Carolyn Shaw when I have when I have some time I love that that's great and she's such a fabulous composer well thank you so much mm. for coming on loud and clear Jana. I'll have links to all the music and all the things we've referenced in the show notes and if you're in the Saskatoon area I really encourage you you to go see her live and in action with the SSO Orchestra and the music of ABBA on January 21st. Thank you so much. I hope to have you back again. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. Thank you so much, Olivia. Take care. And that is a wrap on my episode with Jana Saylor. I am so thrilled that I was able to chat with her and speak with her about her conducting career and the amazing work that she is a part of with Allegra Chamber Ensemble. So I really encourage you to check out the show notes for the links to the videos of Allegra Allegra and have a listen this week. At the time of recording this podcast, I would usually give a call to action and say you need to buy tickets for this upcoming show, but it is sold out. And so if you are the lucky ones that got tickets to the ABBA show with the SSO this weekend, enjoy your concert experience and enjoy the music of ABBA with the SSO under Maestra Janice Saylor. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week. As always, feel free to leave a five-star rating and written review and I encourage you to check out the show notes and let me know what you thought of the show. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows and if you don't live in the Saskatoon area you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host Olivia Adams, this is Loud and Clear and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in, we'll see you next time.